Hello, and welcome back to the Economics Review. Our guest today is a globally recognized expert on megatrends and how to build companies that thrive by serving the world as well as a best-selling author. His views on strategy have been sought after by many of the world's leading companies, including 3M, DuPont, Johnson & Johnson, Kimberly-Clark, Marriott, PepsiCo, and Unilever. Andrew is the author of the bestsellers Green to Gold and The Big Pivot. Andrew's latest book, Net Positive, How Courageous Companies Strive by Giving More Than They Take, is a finalist for the Financial Times and McKinsey Business Book of the Year Award. It is truly my honor to welcome to the show, Andrew Winston. Thank you so much for joining us, Andrew. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So firstly, I'd like to start off by asking you to introduce yourself and your background. Sure. Thanks. Um, thanks for the opportunity. So um, my background is I came out of uh, college with an economics degree. So I think probably like a lot of your your listeners, uh, I went to Boston Consulting Group. So I was in a consulting firm as kind of my first gig, which really shaped you know my thinking about business. I think I spent some years in um, in the media business, Time Warner, Viacom, doing strategy, marketing, business development kinds of jobs. And through kind of the dot com crash, had a kind of check on my values and what I really wanted to focus on and. Um, got an MBA in there and then, you know, decided I wanted to focus my business, you know, uh, kind of knowledge and talents on solving kind of larger problems for the world and, and started thinking more about environmental issues and, and went and got a degree in environmental management. So I've been, you know, working on this overlap between business and society for about 20 years now and um, have written four books. This is my, my latest one is my fourth um, and work with multinationals fundamentally to help them understand the world's megatrends, the really big shifts that are happening and changing, you know, what it means to be a business and how to operate today um, and help them build companies that that serve the world, that profit by solving really big problems instead of causing them. And, um, you know, I work with companies in a lot of different ways as a you know consultant directly. I do a lot of speaking around the world and, and as I said, a lot of writing. So, um, you know, I'm trying to change hearts and minds fundamentally and, and get them to see business in a different light and, and see the potential for business, I think, in, um, in, a, in a different way. All right. So your latest book, Net Positive, has been incredibly well received and talks about corporate social responsibility and the role the businesses have to play in mitigating social and environmental and economic issues. So could you please tell us a bit more about the premise of the book and how it came about? Sure. So um, and it's interesting you use the phrase corporate social responsibility, because I think one of the things we're trying to do in Net Positive is um, is move well beyond that that kind of um, idea of corporate social responsibility. It's a fairly narrow thing within business to um, it often, you know, covers philanthropy or, or kind of things that seem like they're outside the, the core of business. Um, net positive is is about how you operate a business and how you thrive, how you profit. Um, my co-author is Paul Pullman, who's the former CEO of Unilever, which has um, been consistently ranked as the most sustainable company or the largest company that's doing the most to change the way we think about business and move it down a path towards solving environmental and social issues as core to the business. And um, he was CEO for 10 years and had never really written a book. And I've written a few in this space. So we kind of came together a couple of years ago. And the, the premise is really that the challenges we're facing, the really big issues in the world, climate change in particular and inequality, are big, thorny, um, accelerating um, and require action at a pace that we've really never seen before. And that business has to move beyond kind of taking an incremental approach to issues like this and just trying to be a little less bad each year and really, really focus on how they can um, improve the well-being of everybody that they touch, all, all their stakeholders, employees, consumers, customers, suppliers, communities, 
um, and do that through everything they do, all their products and services and through the influence of their, their business on the world. Um, and this is kind of the North Star that we're putting out. Uh, there's no company that I think can claim to be there yet. Unilever certainly can't, um, but it's, you know, it's going down the path. And there's some really great examples of companies that are pretty far along on aspects of their business. So um, the book really tries to lay out how do you build a company that 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 does this kind of as a natural way of doing business that really is thinking in a much broader way about um, who it's serving. So it isn't just trying to solve for very short term shareholder value, but create value for all stakeholders and serve shareholders because you've solved problems and served the stakeholders well, um, then the shareholders will do just fine. Yeah. So, I mean, that's that's where I wanted to get into the, the premise of the book a little bit, um, because you talk about the, the responsibility of the company to all its stakeholders. Um, so conventionally speaking, corporate directors have a fiduciary duty to maximize profits for their shareholders. So according to Milton Friedman and a free enterprise private property system, a corporate ex- executive is an employee of the owners of the business. And they have a direct responsibility to their employers. And that responsibility is to conduct the business in accordance with their de- desires, which is generally to make as much money as possible. So I wanted to understand a bit more about how we can reconcile the primary legal responsibility of a corporation, which is to make as much money as it can for its shareholders, with the premise of your book, which calls on them to get involved in broader societal issues. Well, I think I'd, I'd kind of challenge the premise that fiduciary responsibility actually doesn't read anywhere that you have to make as much money as possible. Um, fiduciary responsibility really means that you're a responsible guardian of the value of the business. And there's a lot of ways to interpret that. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're producing the most cash flow this week, right? It's about protecting the assets of that business and all that it all that it owns and all that it that it um, has, both tangible and intangible value. So there's there's a very strong argument that the fiduciary duty actually suggests that the board does have to take into account what's going on in the world and needs to be thinking long term or the business won't thrive. Right. And there's this false, I think, dichotomy that I've been, you know, working in this you know, sphere for 20 years, kind of fighting this false idea that if you're taking on um, you know, societal issues, somehow you're anti-business. When I mean the definition of a business is fundamentally solving a problem for someone, right? I mean, Peter Drucker and, and many others have said some version of finding a customer and solving a problem for them. We're not saying anything different, right? The the problems of the world are problems of people, right? We need renewable energy. Um, we need, um, you know, b- better wages for people. They can live a better life. Like these are these are problems people have, and um, and solving problems generally can make a business more valuable. So I, I think that the idea of fiduciary responsibility has been warped, and it doesn't really mean I think exactly what you're what you're saying. Um, and we believe very strongly that a company that operates in a way that is is solving problems. Um, for everyone is more profitable, is fundamentally more profitable. And I think, you know, Unilever, as an example, over the 10 years that Paul was CEO, it had a 300% total shareholder return, which was, you know, far outpaced its peers. It did very well. Um, There's, there's frankly, more and more evidence, especially in the last few years, that companies that fall under some bucket of, you know, ESG, environmental, social and governance uh, investing or socially responsible investing, that they're outperforming. Um, this year in January, Larry Fink, who's the world's largest investor, he has the fiduciary responsibility for more assets than anyone in the world. He about ten trillion at at uh, BlackRock. He's put out a, a letter to CEOs every January for forever, really. But um, every January, he writes a letter to the world CEOs. And for the last five or six years, they've really been about ESG and climate 
and getting increasingly focused on those issues and saying that to create value, you need to be managing these issues well. And he, he said this year, in fact, that there's no company that um, avoids the repercussions of the move to a net zero carbon world. The move away from fossil fuels is going to affect everyone. And if you're not managing that well, your valuation will suffer. This, you know, These are his words. And he also cited the fact that in 2020, 81% of the sustainable investing funds outperformed their benchmarks. Now, frankly, I, I don't actually think stock price is the perfect indication of how companies are doing, but it's pretty hard to argue that there's something that's hurting fiduciary responsibility when 80% are outperforming. So I, I think there's there's always been this kind of false story when really this is now the path to, to relevance and value creation. And we can kind of talk about the, the buckets of value creation and, and why this is true. But you know, in, in simplest terms, companies that are managing their environmental and social issues well are generally reducing their costs, they're managing their risk, they're driving new revenues through innovation to solve customer problems, and they're building intangible value. You know, the, the value of employees that want to work for you, of customer loyalty, of communities that welcome you um, and make business easier for you. These are all very measurable and large scale value creation opportunities. So this isn't against fiduciary responsibility. In fact, this is, I think, the only path to it. Right. So um, I wanted to understand the distinctions between the premise of your book vis-a-vis um, -vis how it applies to businesses of, of different sizes. So, for example, how can a, say, small bakery or the local hardware store that makes most of their money from foot traffic justify an investment that goes towards, say, mitigating a social problem as opposed to investing in advertising or capital, which they can see will directly increase their profit? Well, I guess it, de it depends on what you mean by what we mean by investing in a social problem, making your business far more energy efficient is quote investing in the social problem of climate change i mean that that's what it means to tackle climate change in the most narrow term is to reduce your footprint reduce your energy use that saves money right there's some very quick wins that fall under the sustainability banner that work for any size company frankly and um maybe more so for the smaller that that are you know that are working on kind of shorter shorter cash time frames um you know also you know we're talking about and obviously our, our book is written you know by a ceo of a giant multinational and i work with multinationals so we're, we're speaking the multinational language but even when we're talking about managing um you know social issues about you know helping communities thrive that applies to the small businesses as well um they they are in a local community they are part of that local community they have relationships with um the community members and with the local government so it, it isn't just about multinationals sitting down with you know power brokers in dc and talking about policy the small businesses are also operating um you know working within their local municipality and local government so serving your community being a community contributor um shouldn't hurt a local bakery say it should be helping them right so you know, in the aftermath of, say, the, the beginning of the pandemic, you saw companies really have to step up and, and ask themselves what they were about and who they were really serving. And I think the local were part of that as well. You know, like a bakery is a good example of, um, you know, a company that probably faced some challenges about, well, what should we do with some of the food that we have? What should we do to try to help the community as there's more hunger when the pandemic started? And I'm sure, you know, local merchants were the ones that were kind of closer to the problems and able to help solve them and, and just strengthen their ties to the community. That makes for a stronger business, not a weaker one. So, I mean, again, we're not talking about picking some unrelated issue to go invest. And we're not saying take your money and instead of advertising, send it to, you know, hunger in Africa. We're talking about through your business, making the world around you better. Um, and that that was at the scale of Unilever. That's the kind of things they did for, for many years through their products, helping the world thrive. Um, which helped them sell more of the product um, down to the small businesses as well. 
Right. So um, if I understand correctly, um, the the distinction that you're drawing then there is um, a business not so much um, taking its t- taking its profits and then um, donating it um, back to organizations or donating it to a social cause so much as um, modifying their products or modifying their business practices in order to, um, for example, one of the things you mentioned, um, become more energy efficient, um, reduce their carbon footprint, things like that. Well, I mean, those are the kind of more obvious, you know, energy efficiency, money saving things. But right, I mean, I mean, again, the 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 premise here of, of some of your questions is that you are taking money from you know core business and moving it to something that that isn't about business. That's philanthropy, and that's something that I don't really work on, and and um, am kind of ambivalent about. Companies can do philanthropy if they like; they have a choice, just like individuals, about whether they want some of their profits and some of their money to go to philanthropy. That's not what sustainability or corporate sustainability or being a net positive business is about. Um, and, you know, I'll, I can give you examples of what it means for companies to tackle larger issues. So you've got on the you know carbon or energy front companies like Microsoft and Google, uh, companies that I don't think anybody confuses with um, philanthropies, right? They're maximizing profits. They've set the most aggressive kind of carbon reduction goals in the world. Microsoft is uh, trying to uh, remove more carbon from the air than they have emitted since they were founded. They're taking responsibility really for their emissions since they were founded. And they're doing that by bringing much more renewable energy online and then investing in sequestration projects and and new technologies. Google is also trying by 2030 to power their data centers entirely on renewable energy on site. So on-site energy storage, and then working with the local grid to potentially make the grid entirely green energy so that when they do plug in, it's also green electrons. These are things that help their business. They help they help the, the communities around them. They help reduce their footprint and help tackle climate change. Those are all good things, but they are core to the business. I mean, a number of years ago, Microsoft's you know risk officers were looking at the, the big risks to their business. And, and one of their executives said, hey, have you looked at energy? And they said, no, we were, never really thought about it. Um, and then a couple of weeks later, they came back and said, okay, now it's one of our top three issues because a data center and all of these tech companies rely on steady, reliable energy. Um, and there's volatility in prices in the grid and in fossil fuels and climate change itself is threatening to the grid as there's more storms, floods. I mean, these are real expenses and real risks to the business. So the more they can generate their own energy, the lower risk they are. This is again, core to the business. And I can't imagine a shareholder who wouldn't find that appealing for these guys to get frankly off grid and be able to power and have hundred percent reliability in their own business. I mean, that's just one example of what this, what this looks like. Yeah. Um, and so that's definitely, um, I think that that really works to reconcile the issues um, on the shareholder side. But also, um, I wanted to ask what you think the role or the proper responsibility of government is in, in all this. Do you think it's um, it's justifiable or, or the legal responsibility of, of the government or the moral responsibility of the government, sorry, to, um, to get involved and to try and um, force businesses to do this um, through legislation? Or do you think that's something that needs to be driven through um, social change and a change in the mindsets rather than a change in legislation? Well, I think it has to be all. I mean, we the, the our book, you know, Net Positive really builds toward, you know, through kind of these kind of early steps of, of finding the purpose of a business, which really drives value pretty aggressively for a company and attracts and retains people to setting these really aggressive goals, which drives performance. Um, through these kind of steps to get to partnership and 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 collaboration and and the book really builds fundamentally to the idea of systems partnerships. If you want to solve something like 
the grid needs to be much greener, quicker, or how do we manage human rights issues in the supply chain so there's no child slavery, that you need not just business, not just civil society, and we as consumers and, and NGOs, but government as well. You need all three, civil society, business, and government to be working together, working towards you know systems change. Um, I mean, government has to do certain things. Like there's there's no other entity that can really set the rules of the game for a market, for you know a sector, meaning um, we need a price on carbon. That's, that's how you price something into a market. The, a free market works great, but the free market right now isn't priced. It's actually flawed, deeply flawed. Um, we're not pricing all the things that are in that market. And so only the government can really do that. And, you know, the government can also do things like set, you know, fuel efficiency standards for cars and, um, you know, just set the, the ground rules and the goals. And then companies can compete and innovate to get there. I think that's generally the best combination of practices. So it's not that um, the, the government says to, you know, an auto company, you have to use this exact technology. They just say, we need to cut emissions by this much by this year, and we need to raise fuel efficiency. And the auto companies start going down the path to electric vehicles. I mean, they have voluntarily, almost every large auto company in the world now, they have voluntarily committed to uh, move away from internal combustion engines to electric vehicles entirely within the next 15, 20 years. Um, and, and some of them, like Daimler, have actually pulled all their investment from internal combustion engines. They're not doing any more R&D in that realm. So it it's it's moving. The government then can help by also being in you know public-private um, partnership on investment in things like EV infrastructure. That's some of that money is in the new infrastructure bill that the U.S. passed. There's money for some of that in the budget bill. They're still debating so that the auto companies can actually reach their goals and sell more electric vehicles and be more profitable. So you need the whole system moving together. And that does involve government. It has to. Yeah. And I think this is one of one of those areas where um, that I think we can find large and or broad bipartisan agreement um, in, in government. I was speaking last week on the podcast with Dr. Walter Block, who's um, famously a, a extremely right leading um, libertarian um, guy who who really despises the the role that government takes in a lot of issues. And, and I was talking to him about climate change and what what I found was surprisingly um, yourself and what he said was similarly aligned. So he said that well. Think about it like this. Um, so if myself or a business, if we come and we dump our trash on your lawn, um, you would obviously call the police because that's that's, um, you know, it's infringing on your safety. It's infringing on the safety of the community. You know, it's creating an un unhealthy environment for yourself and the people around you. And he said, well, now think about it like this. What if they incinerate that trash and then send it over into over, over the atmosphere um, of your house? It's exactly the same. But yet, you know, if you call the police, there's nothing they can do. So right. he, he made this argument for why even under the most right leaning of government philosophies where, you know, um, where, where most people wouldn't even give a second thought to government involvement in something as broad as climate change or um, environmental issues, um, he, he made this argument. So I think this is yeah. this is something where we can find extremely broad bipartisan support from the, the furthest reaches of the political left to, to the, the right. Um, well, the, I mean, those examples of pollution have really been the, the base examples of nuisance laws and kind of early environmental law going back 100 years, I mean, you know, and, and are have are often used by libertarians as the example of the kind of thing that they are comfortable with. Right. That there has to be there has to be repercussions. And sometimes they say, well, we just have if you have property rights, like if you have 
everybody has ownership of something like you have ownership of your lawn. And so if someone dumps on it, but then you still need some enforcement, right? Libertarian doesn't mean that there's no government, right? That there's no police or fire or, you know, or some form of, of, uh, you know, oversight. I mean, I don't think many libertarians would like there to be no oversight over food or drugs, right? In, in our system, like there's, I've heard some who would say, oh, well, the market will take care of it. But you know, that's a, that's a long road to taking care of making sure food and drugs are safe is to say, well, if someone does something wrong and they kill a bunch of people, then they'll get sued. I think most people would prefer we don't go through the step of killing a bunch of people. So we prefer to have oversight, right? And, and, and some assurance, like, like the process of getting to vaccines that the FDA approves, right? We need some of that um, assurance and, and standards. Uh, business needs that to kind of operate and function to know kind of what environment they're operating in. And we all need it to be to, so we can trust the system, right? So we need those rules. Um, it, it's We've gotten into such a strange false divide. And I think you mentioned Milton Friedman right at the beginning of this, but you know his philosophy and kind of this 50 years of, of you know focus on, on this very sim- kind of simplistic view of markets above all have created this environment where we treat the government like it's just this alien entity rather than it's a, you know, in a, in a democracy or a republic like the US, it's a representative government. It's supposed to represent our, our needs, both shared and individual. Um, and so we should be working together rather than considering them some kind of alien or, you know, or enemy. Uh, okay. Yeah. So uh, I think that that definitely answers um, my questions regarding the, the role of government and all this. So in the book, you talk a lot about the issues from the point of view of the business. So I wanted to ask you a bit about the other side of the equation. So I myself, I run a small not-for-profit organization that raises money to create learning um, opportunities and improve um, educational um, opportunities for disadvantaged children. And every time we've reached out to businesses, so both extremely large and small businesses to support us, the first thing that they ask us to do is to prove to them how they will receive a return on their investment. They want us to present them with a business case. So for a lot of organizations like mine, a lot of say um, environmental organizations that are on the front lines trying to fight these issues, convincing businesses to get involved or to support them um, is next to impossible because it's very difficult to prove to them on paper um, how we are the best place to invest their money or, um, you know, these sorts of things are good use of their money. So um, my question for you is how can people um, working to fight this, these sorts of societal issues get through to their local businesses and convince them or prove to them that their investment will pay off? Yeah, look, it's a challenge. I mean, you're, what you're describing is not just kind of funding from business, but the foundation world. Um, and that includes corporate foundations too, but the foundation world, and I, you know, I'm not in this world very much, but I see enough that, they've moved much more towards the kinds of metrics you're describing or wanting to prove a return on investment. There's been kind of a, you know, a, like a business, uh, like a kind of business shift in the, in the foundation world. And there's some good aspects of that. We should all, you know, want our resources to have the most, you know, uh, action possible or the, be the most productive. But the downside is there's a lot of things that um, need to happen, you know, systemically kind of undercurrent of things that that may not be easily measurable and, and still need to happen, you know, just kind of general funding for NGOs to operate on a problem that everyone agrees needs solving. It's sometimes hard to get an exact ROI um, and, and maybe isn't the right question anyway. So I, it, this is a problem. And I and I don't I don't know what the easy answer is, because I think some of the things an NGO does are certainly measurable. If you've got a certain number of programs, you're going to reach a certain number of people you can, you know, measure how you're doing against that, how the funds have met your goal of reaching X number of kids or people, right? But measuring the well-being improvement that that creates for the world 
uh, is challenging. And it's a challenge, you know, we talk about and, and I think is is one of the, the remaining work pieces of work to do on the net positive philosophy is how do you measure the, the well-being that a company creates in addition to its kind of directly measurable um, you know, product benefits for people. And, and it's not easy. So I, I think part of it is, as always, is speaking, the, speaking the language of business as much as possible, but, but trying to have the discussion be more about the, the conditions that we need for business or for the people you're trying to serve to thrive so that it's something about the system we're in, not so much about just the directly measurable, you know, dollar for dollar impact. Um, and, and look, they're hard conversations, right? I think it, it, it kind of, but going back to net positive, I think the most effective way is if you can bring in companies where, where the, the goals of the NGO are in line with what the company wants to accomplish. So the, the kind of core example um, in the book from or one of them uh, from Unilever is something that sounds very much like philanthropy, which is a, a project they've done with Unilever and UNICEF for many years now, but really accelerated under my co-author where they do hand-washing events around the world. And, and they're using one brand, Life Boy Soap, which is a Unilever brand that's been around since its founding in the 1870s. And it's it's a health and hygiene product, but they're doing these campaigns to help kids wash their hands so they avoid diseases that can kill them and are, are easily transmittable, but, but you can avoid through hand-washing. And this sounds like philanthropy, but it's actually helped the business grow tremendously. It's part of how the business operates. It's part of their marketing budget is we do these as part of our brand building and part of our, our goal of helping improve health and hygiene. So the, the, the brand itself, the soap itself started growing at double digits um, and growing very fast for a soap really. And it drove innovation. They created new products and they've just reached literally a billion people through this. So it, it's this kind of combination of, of it's not a philanthropy for that brand. It is core to how they operate. So I think as an NGO, if you can find companies or divisions or products where it fits what they stand for and what their purpose is, you're going to probably get farther than just asking for money. Right. Um, well, those are all the questions that I have for you today. So thank you so much for joining us on the show, Andrew. No problem. Glad to be here. It was fun. Thank you, everyone, so much for listening to the Economics Review. And as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.